first Bible reading tonight, if you turn it upside down and it's the second last page before the middle, and we're reading from Luke chapter 3, verse 7 to 18, then we get to flip halfway for the second reading. So Luke chapter 3. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptised by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe has been laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? the crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share one with should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptised. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't, uh, don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay." The people were waiting expectantly, and all were wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptise you with water, but the one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn." But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. And then for the second reading, if you flip up the other way, and again, it's the second last page before the middle. (coughs) And we're reading from James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of the slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Just a couple of things before I um, begin. Um, uh, I'm going to... My job is to teach the Bible, and I've got James 5, 1 to 5, and it's the next text in a series in James. You know, it's not like we're choosing it. It's the next seri- uh, set of uh, words in the book of James that we need to deal with. Um, but I think I have to interact a little bit with economics today, both modern and ancient economics, but I'm really no economist. I don't have a mind for it. And um, so I'd love you to interact with me. The things I say, I've sort of got a little bit of help along the way. But if you disagree with me, that's great. No problem at all. Interact with me and I'd like to hear from you if you've got a different approach to the way we're looking at things. Uh, You know, it's general enough for not to be controversial, but uh, but I do think we need to interact with it to truly unlock both the power of this uh, text and its plausibility in a liberal Western democracy. You'll see that in a few moments' time. Second thing I just didn't say before, I... the. 
discussions this week about uh, abortion and about the bill that's going, that's being uh, presented to the Parliament is is pretty hard. It's disturbing for everybody. Um, important to have the discussion. Uh, sensitive and yet profound. You know, to even to, I mean. It's remarkable. Laurel and I feel a bit burdened by it all, and uh, we are going to have a prayer meeting at our home at the rectory tomorrow night at 7.30. She wanted to do it, and I think it's a good thing. So um, if anyone wants to join us, 7.30 at 8.30 in my home in Millers Point. I'm just down on Lower Fort Street. And uh, no posturing, no, politi- no politicizing, no, um, no, ar- no arguments, just prayer for one hour, and uh, for pe- not only for the parliamentarians who are making the decision, also the way in which the debate is conducted together with praying for people who find themselves in desperate situations and feel like this is the solution that's being offered to them. We're just going to pray. Um, we're just going to pray. So if you'd like to join us, email me, because I just need to have enough seats in the house, if I can put it this way. You know, we're not expecting, you know, I don't know, maybe lots of you want to join us, maybe, maybe nobody does, that's okay. My wife are going to, and I are going to pray, and you're welcome to join us. Is that Okay. Okay, so uh, one James chapter five. Let's pray together. Father, apply this word to our lives. Give us insight now to know what we need to do. Give us humility to receive this word. Courage to do the things that. Uh, that you have for us tonight, and to do that only in the power of Jesus Christ, not through guilt or shame, but rather power, the power that raised Christ from the dead. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So the book of Proverbs has this beautiful prayer in it, uh, and it goes like this. It's actually in your zines, but don't look it up. <laughs> uh, it's a beautiful prayer. It goes like this. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Lord, I've got two things that I'm asking from you. And don't refuse me an answer to this prayer before I die. Two things. One, keep falsehood and lies far from me. And two, give me neither poverty nor riches. Neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Jesus quotes this proverb. Give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, it's possible that I might have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? I don't need him. I've got everything I need. What a remarkable prayer. You know, only two things, oh God, just two. How about that for a bucket list? One, keep me from lying. Two, give me only what I need. Tonight I want to ask the question, what if it's too late? For many of us, right? More than we need. Listen to this word from James Chapter 5. Now listen, you rich people. Is that us? Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted. Moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Now what is this? Word. Feels a bit like a tirade. On Facebook, you'd call it a rant, perhaps. It's like um, 
You've been holding back, James. Now it's time to let him have it. He goes on. Look, verse 4, the wages you failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields. See, don't do that. Those wages are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty, not just the Fair Work Commission or the courts. They've heard the ears, reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. He's heard them. And then an important word about who he's addressing in verse 6. You, rich people, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one. You killed Jesus, who was not opposing you. He wanted to save you. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You killed Jesus. Now, that's an important line for understanding who receives these six verses and, impl- and applying the passage to our lives. I believe that James has a message for believers in the end about trust rather than fear, about love, not selfishness, about giving instead of hoarding, about grace rather than control, and about doing what is right, not what is unjust or worse, oppressive. Believers in the glorious Lord Jesus have an opportunity not to let uh, another script in, another narrative that destroys You might not know this, but in the 19th century, a rector of this church went over to the local pub. His name was Archdeacon John Langley. He went over to the publican, the pub, and he said to him, mate, you and I, something like, mate, you and I are the only two pastors of this area. And they worked together to improve the conditions of the workers on the Hungry Mile, which is now Barangaroo. Hosting meetings right here, in the parish of, of St. Philip's. Now, why did he do that? I don't, it's, not, it's not as if he was a sort of proto-Marxist. Um, no, I believe it's because he, in fact, I know it because I've seen quotes from him. He noticed the condition of the workers, they are precious in God's sight, and he knew it to make this more human. Now, we have, that's our history. We have, my, our parish is steeped in this history. I found out, or rather processed this week, uh, some amazing history with respect to the Garrison Church. And if you're Facebook friends of mine, you may have seen this. Namely, that the eight-hour working day began at the Garrison Church. I found this out at the Trades Hall, met with this very enthusiastic union historian. Not the idea of the eight-hour working day. That had been bubbling along for quite some time in Sydney and Melbourne and around the world. But the eight-hour day started accidentally and suddenly at our church. Listen to this quote. It's a quote. It's a real quote, but I did get it from Wikipedia. But it's a real quote. The Stonemason Society in Sydney issued an ultimatum to employers on 18th of August, 1855, saying that after six months, Mason's would work only eight hours, an eight-hour day, right? Down tools. But the stonemasons working on Holy Trinity Church, that's the Garrison Church, and the Evangelical Seafarers Mission decided not to wait. My union enthusiast said they got enthusiastic and they preemptively went on strike, thus winning the eight-hour, the first to win the eight-hour day in Australia. They celebrated, I'm told, with a victory dinner on the 1st of October... 1855, I like to think down at the Hero of Waterloo, which to this day is celebrated as Labor Day. 
the Labor Day holiday in the state of New South Wales. You get a Labor Day? Started at the Garrison Church. Down tools. The Garrison Church then must have been one of the first building sites in the world, possibly, to secure the eight-hour day. Washed down with a tidy beer and a public holiday. We still have 165 years ago. Now, why did that happen at the Garrison Church and the Seafarers' Mission as opposed to other sites? Now, we don't know. Well, someone might know. I, he, the historian didn't know. But it wouldn't be a stretch to believe that both places felt safe for the workers. Both places were led by, as I understand it, good people, evangelicals, believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. I have no records, but I assume that they downed tools. I assume that the rector agreed. Not thinking of profit, but of people's livelihood, of what it means to be human. It's a good guess. James says, God hears the worker who's been mistreated. So what is this word? What's it doing here? How are we to read it? Are we the rich who have fattened ourselves for the day of slaughter? Is that our future? Now, I've read lots of commentaries, talked to a lot of people. I do not believe that verses 1 to 6 directly apply to us. Verse 7 gets to brothers and sisters. I'll show you why in a few moments' time. But I also want to say we can't avoid it either. I want to feel it's... um, uh, heat and properly apply it to our lives while at the same time receiving the warmth that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. You'll see that in a few moments' time. And the reason is that these six verses follow a particular Jewish mode of instruction called prophecy um, or, the, or prophetic lament. Woe, oh woe, oh woe. But you've seen it through the Old Testament. And I think the power of properly applying this passage to our lives comes from this insight. So, If you can find your outline, what is this word? It is a prophetic word. It is a word in context, historic and economic context. Thirdly, it's a hard word. But fourthly, it's not the last word. It's a hard word, but not the last word. The last word is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's break those apart. Firstly, it is a prophetic word. It's prophetic lament. Uh, And you can see something of that mode in John the Baptist. You know, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. You know, oh, <laughs> the axe is at the foot of the tree. What should we do? You've got to do things right. You've got to pay your workers and etc. etc. A lot of people think that, pro- that prophecy is predicting the future, but that's really mostly about Nostradamus rather than Jewish scripture. They did predict the future on, in some forms, but basically against the promises of God. The prophets did a number of things. They told the story of God's actions in the past, his promises for the future. They applied it. They weren't afraid to call a spade a spade, and they called called on God's people to wake up, to wake up and repent. So they made a living out of unsettling the comfortable. I love how you don't get the impression that John the Baptist got a spin doctor or a marketing manager. They spoke out against the flab of spiritual arrogance in Israel. But, and here's the key for this text. Quite regularly they included, they embedded into their prophecies a word against the nations surrounding God's people. Words of judgment for their injustices and their sins. They were about those nations but written for Israel. To be read by Israel. Some examples. The middle of Ezekiel, the beginning of Amos, 
the whole of Obadiah. Words of judgment against nations, the sin of the nation, the injustice of the nations surrounding. But it's not as if Ezekiel, Amos, and Obadiah then organized an international speaking tour. I mean, it's highly likely that those nations didn't even hear those messages. So why did they embed this lament in the middle of a note to God's people? Well, three reasons, and they follow on from each other. First, to tell God's people that sin will be universally judged. You've got these nations doing horrible things. Don't think that God is going to overlook it. He won't. And secondly, that will ensure that God's people don't envy those other nations. And third, that they might not join in the injustices and the sins out of fear. Don't be afraid. God's watching. He'll take care of it. Don't envy those whom God opposes because they won't win. And you won't either if you join them. It's the same message, by the way, in the end of Revelation. Fallen, fallen, there's Babylon the Great. All the people who've joined, you know, you don't, don't buy it. It's a narrative you don't have to buy. Out of fear. It's my thesis, well, it's a common thesis, that James wrote this letter and he's drawing on this prophetic tradition. And you'll notice, for example, he doesn't address them as brothers and sisters. That comes in verse 7. Doesn't address them as believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. No note of grace, no call to repentance, no opportunity to change. Unless you say weep well and mourn is an opportunity to change. But it's really weep because the just judgment is coming on you. Most commentators, although some do, say that James 5, 1 to 6 is not written to the churches he writes, but rather to the church about either the wealthy landowners whose behaviour is killing members of the church, you don't have to buy that narrative, you don't have to get involved in that corruption, or to, verse 6, the ruling class in Jerusalem who killed Jesus, who condemned and murdered the innocent one. And James is saying, don't envy them, they'll be judged. So the word comes in verse 7, not printed. And I'm really sorry, I should have, should have thought this ahead of time. Verse 7, it's, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. But feel the weight of it, because in verse 9, he'll say, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. So even if this message is for others, or it could be for members of the church who buy the narrative... Even still, I'm warned. It's a tough message. We'll come to that in a moment. There's a God who hears the cries of the workers who've not been paid. So I need this word. I think Australia needs this word. But secondly, it's a prophetic word. Secondly, it's a word in context. Um, I opened up this text a couple of weeks ago and <clears throat> got a lot of interaction. I want interaction from you. You know, what does it really mean? You know, it's difficult. Even though in that message five weeks ago, I made a distinction between the first century and now. I made the claim that economics is not necessarily a zero-sum game where, you know, zero-sum game, um, you know, you can only get rich if you push these people down. Um, you know, that, that, that there's, a, there's a pie, and if I have this much, I'm necessarily meaning that another person doesn't have that amount. No, I, 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 get, I, I get all that. And I don't believe that this passage is class warfare either. There's rich people and there's poor people and 
Certainly the passage is not saying rise up against the rich. It's not saying that at all. It's not saying down tools. I'm not arguing, you know, people can down tools. But that's not what this passage is saying. This passage is saying God has heard the cries of the workers, so you be patient till the Lord comes. I gave this message touching in on this passage, but I was burdened afterwards by the fact that I don't really get economics, not current economics, nor ancient economics, but I think we need to know about it. And so, well, look, after the message last time, a very thoughtful gentleman from 1015 sent me an email reflecting on my message in the hopes that I might sort of think about this passage and how it's heard and made sense of by modern ears in a liberal Western democracy where the checks and balances are not the same as in the first century. Um, that is, in the first century, those who were rich often got richer by exploiting people, not paying them, uh, skimming taxes. I mean, there was a profession about skimming taxes. They called them tax collectors, and Jesus loved them. But you would do that through corruption or might. You'd invade, invade Persia, invade the Aztecs, invade India and plunder their goods. That still happens today, but uh, in the last couple of hundred years, there's been a lot of changes in science and technology, etc., etc. In a liberal Western democracy like our own, there's better governance and there are some checks and balances. And even, of course, the, the work of unions, very important. So today, it is possible for a person to become wealthier through moral means. And that's, you know, a lot of you, well, some of you know the things you've done not right, and this message is for you. you know, this message is saying, God saw it, and you, you, need, you, know, you need to rectify and to ask for forgiveness. But a lot of you have gained some wealth, and you've gathered it over time, and a lot of it's through hard work, and it's come because of the gift of education and and of course, where God placed you, and that's a gift, he could have placed you in another part of the world, you know. Um, some of you have been gr granted some wealth that's come through a windfall, an inheritance, or there's many ways in which people have gained wealth in our society, and it's not necessarily come through immoral means. In fact, some of you do, in fact, have wealth, and you're asking yourself the question, where was the moment when I stuffed people around like I did? You're trying to ask that question. My friend wanted to challenge me because he said this. He said, this is really important for a person struggling with religion, trying to understand the Bible, a casual reader of James, and they just dismiss it as irrelevant or incomprehensible. He says, we need to understand it in this historical context. Just because you are comparatively rich, and we are, most of us are, it doesn't mean that you have exploited the worker. If you have, there's a message for it. It doesn't mean you have. As I said, this is not class Warfare, this is not a message for Marxism or against capitalism, nor is it a message for capitalism and against Marxism. So this passage is not a condemnation of all who wear the tag wealthy, and you know, most of us could. But rather, it is a strident condemnation of the arrogant rich who see their wealth as security. Proverbs 30. And the passage functions to warn brothers and sisters to be patient. Don't join them. Choose Christ's narrative, not this narrative. And these rich people are the, express their arrogance by defrauding the workers. They think they can get away with it. And James is saying, no, they won't. And they seek security by hoarding, 
gaining, 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 gaining. And God says, you've just thought about yourself and no one else. So perhaps the question James poses to all of us is not, do I have enough money to be deemed rich? I think that would probably apply to most of us, at least comparatively. But rather, is my attitude to wealth one of dependency on it? Who's the Lord? I'm okay. And perhaps really sharply, my attitude towards others, arrogance towards them. I can mistreat them. The message for everyone is humble yourselves before God's mighty hand and he will lift you up. He's the father of heavenly lights who gives every good gift. So stop thinking they're yours to get by exploitation. James says in the previous chapter, you know, you have not because he asked not. You know, you've got to pray about these things, not just take and take and take. That's why James says, you know, quarrels and fights come because you, you desire but you don't have and so you covet and control. That's why he says, don't say I'm going to this city or that city, you know, make more money. He's saying, if the Lord wills it, you know, I'll go to this city and that city and, and perhaps make money. See. So it's a, a word in context. Third, it's a hard word. Um, these are tough words. We've got to feel a weight of these tough words through that grid of understanding or that hermeneutic. What are we to avoid then if we didn't want to choose this narrative but choose Christ's narrative? Well, firstly, you'll avoid what he calls hoarding. Chapter 5, verse 3, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. I'm told by psychologists, and I've read a little bit about this, not much, but Hoarding, of course, is now a psychological disorder, you know, um, and I'm told that part of the reason why people collect the magazines and it's, you know, it's a dreadful uh, place to be, but part of it is about uh, gaining control over your life. And I don't believe that James here is talking about that psychological disorder, uh, but rather, you know, ha- in the, hoarding in the, in the economic sense, which is like in the psychological sense, is in the end about control. You have to have, and you have to have more. And the more I have, the more security I'll have. I'll have a buffer. I'll be future-proof, as if such a thing exists. So that hoarding then will be a mode for me. It'll stop me from sharing, from giving, from generosity. So perhaps the prayer in the tough word might be, save me, O God from the sort of fear that makes me want to take and take and take rather than give. In other words, make me more like Jesus Christ. It's the first tough word. Second thing to avoid is exploitation. These people are exploiting the workers who mowed their fields, not paying them. Quick way to get rich, you know, um, lessen your expenses. But James says, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the, the Lord Almighty. And while there's a context here, I, you know, this seems quite relevant to today, doesn't it? I put this note up on Facebook, and everybody linking to various companies who are mistreating and mispaying their workers. I do think the checks and balances are better now than they were in the first century. And one of the checks and balances is news. You know, news takes companies and organisations names them and shames them. And, you know, there's protections against libel and blah, 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 blah. But there's companies today that underpay workers, they don't pay workers, 
or they don't pay workers fair pay. And this, of course, would include modern slavery, which we're now pondering and thinking in that space as well. It's much easier to work out when the, work, when the workers have mowed your field in the first century. See, you can see the person you've mistreated. And you'll actually know it because they'll come to you and say, you haven't paid me. And you go, get there, get there, get there. And you, you're not getting there. But you know them because they live across the back fence. They're mowing your lawn. Much harder to process this internationally. And for those of you who are watching The Good Place on Netflix, get to the end of season three. They start to deal on this matter. Are the goods we buy produced on the back of slave labour? In factories with poor working conditions. I rang a friend of I don't, you know, I rang a friend of mine who gets this thing and he says, if you go to Big W and you see a toaster for five dollars, you can be pretty much sure that someone down the line is being mistreated. I said, should I get a hundred dollar one? He said, well, they might be being mistreated too. Now there are complex issues at play here, but perhaps, and maybe if you do know these things, and I understand there are apps and things about ethics and buying, and I don't, if you do know this space, please reach out to me. We'll give you the microphone. Just show us that you know what. You know, that you know something in this space. Perhaps it's enough to say, when I become aware, I ought to care. Just because I buy it for a buck doesn't mean I should buy it for a buck. Now, I'm not here to tell you what to do or buy. I'm not telling you to boycott some company. I'm not going to virtue signal from this place. I'm saying that God hears the cries of the mistreated. And to the extent that we know, we ought not to be part of it. As we become aware, we ought to care. Another one is, uh, how do we recognise the dispossession of Australia's first peoples? That anything you do, of course, is done in ground where other people, uh, first, Australia's first peoples, were custodians. And I get it, it's a political issue, and I get that there are sites, you know, and... But how do we mourn this? To the extent that we become aware, we ought to care. Perhaps the prayer of this tough word might be, Save me, O oh God, from fear that makes me want to exploit others or defend. Okay, there are complex issues here, but save me from the fear that makes me want to exploit rather than do the right thing. Make me more like Jesus Christ. And the third thing they do to avoid is self-indulgence. Verse 5, you've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. Your mode was your own comfort, your own pleasure, and you were like a, a cow that made sure that you got all the good grass and you pushed others out of the way, not realising, of course, the irony that the owner kills the fat one for the feast. Talking about God here and judgment. Perhaps the prayer is, save me from the sort of fear that makes me want to indulge rather than serve. Make me more like Jesus Christ. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Now, it's a tough word, but it's not the last word. Preachers on this passage tend to say, um, you might not consider yourself rich compared to others, but you are rich compared to most people on the planet, so this passage is about you, so listen up. Um, there's a slaughterhouse coming, and you're in the, in the way of it. It's the same sort of move your mum made when she tried to make you eat the mashed potatoes by reminding you of the plight of kids in Botswana or wherever. But why don't you stop for a moment and ask yourself, does that argument actually work? And I mean, really, does it work? Uh, there'll be an emotional tug. Um, 
I think, teenagers, particularly sensitive. You remember that guy that came to your school and... Uh, or particularly people who are emotionally sensitive. Um, I think for some people it does wake them up, moves them around and makes them make different choices. Uh, but can you imagine just a, using this text as a finger wave, can you imagine it shaping behaviour, um, giving you a new heart, softened and awakened and wanting to be aware? I do not believe that James is writing these six verses to shame you into doing a little bit better. It's not what he's here for. Not what it's here for. That's not how the gospel of Jesus Christ, because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the last word, the last word set after all the tough words. You see, we serve a God who demonstrated the life we are to live. He never asked us to do things he hasn't done himself. That's why Jesus is so important. And in the power of the forgiveness and grace we receive from him, we get the opportunity to sever ourselves from the fears that make us envy the people who live this way. In the Proverbs, uh, the writer says, you know, give me neither poverty nor riches, otherwise I might have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? It's a good question though, who is the Lord? Think about how supreme, supremely rich Jesus Christ is. He is Lord of all. That means he's Lord of it all. That means year upon year, Jesus tops every rich list, even if they don't print his name. Although he himself was never a hoarder, treated the workers with respect, didn't live life on earth in self-indulgence. But he was number one at the bosom of his father, eternally relating as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he put that all aside, to one side, and emptied himself. He made himself nothing. He was willing to lay down everything that rightly belonged to him for your sake, for my sake. That's what the bread and the wine here is in a few moments' time. James alludes to the death of Jesus Christ in verse 6. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one. Uh, who was not opposing you. You did it. Um, but it was in the plans and purposes of God that you, did. you killed the Messiah. God raised him from the dead. He gave it all up, suffered terribly. He became poor. But on the third day, he rose from the dead and now sits exalted at the right hand of the Father and then makes us rich in God. <laughs> um, we have everything we need, James would say, even to the very poorest person, which of course, lift their souls. And so Jesus now steps forward by his spirit into the dark corners of our fears and says, do not be afraid. The dark corners of our need and says, you don't have to chase after what the pagans chase after. He knows what you need. Seek first the kingdom. He'll take care of your needs. He's got it in control. It doesn't mean you go, don't go to this town or that city and do business. You do say, if the Lord wills it, you do pray. You do move forward, but you don't do the levers of control that says, I can mistreat a worker or fatten myself up. Or He's in control, which means that you can have a, a, a sense of peace as you move forward in this complex world. And here's what it ultimately means. It means that in the end, because Christ became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich, it means that you can afford to be generous and 
righteous. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, that makes supreme sense of Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 6 when he says this, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, so many things. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the age to come, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Let's pray. Father, we do want to take hold of the life that is truly life. We want to be liberated uh, from desires that control, uh, fears that make us uh, mistreat others, and behaviours that are inappropriate. We uh, thank you for the, every good that we enjoy. We recognise these things as a gift coming from the Father of heavenly lights. Uh, we want to work uh, and in that space do the right thing by those who, to whom you've, you've given to us to be responsible for. A lot of complex issues, of course, in work matters in that space, but we pray that you'll give us everything we need as we become aware, help us to care. Give us this mercy. Show us the forgiveness we have and the grace we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. And may this, not, just, not guilt, may this, uh, this guilt-free life uh, liberate us to, to live generous and righteous lives. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen.